Hi, and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations about issues emanating from psychiatry that impact society, as well as discuss societal issues that have potential implications for mental health and emotional well-being. My guests include thought leaders from both within the discipline of psychiatry and beyond. Beyond Madness is brought to you in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. Cutting or burning oneself, amongst other behaviors, would be for most anathema. Yet for some, it's a source of relief, a release, a way of coping in the midst of struggle. In the United States, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently reported, that was in March of this year, 2023, that teenagers are facing the highest levels of sadness and sexual violence in a decade, with a finding that one in five high school students seriously considered attempting suicide. Now, this was 2021 data, so you've got to note that the reporting generally follows data collection by some years, which means things might be worse or they might be better. Either way, cause for concern. And one might argue that American data does not reflect the South African experience, yet on an earlier episode of this podcast, which was related to suicide and the media, data was cited from the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, SADAG, revealing that pre-COVID, 600 calls a day to their call center. During lockdown, that is from March 2020, going up to 1,000 to 1,400 calls per day. Between January and September of 2022, 3,000 calls a day, meaning over 500,000 during that period. One in four calls, suicide-related, up from 2021, where it was one in five, and the majority were from youth. That's South African data. So on today's episode, entitled Youth, Self-Harm, and Suicidality, we're joined by Professor Mark Goldblatt and Dr. Wendy Duncan. Mark is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in Cambridge, Massachusetts, USA, he is no stranger to the podcast. He's previously been with us talking about the trauma of loss and grief. Mark received his medical degree from the University of the Advertisement, and he's an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, as well as a clinical associate at McLean Hospital in Boston. He's the founding member of the Boston Suicide Group, and he has a longstanding interest in suicide and psychoanalysis. Wendy is a subspecialist, child and adolescent psychiatrist working in private practice at the Day Clinic here in Johannesburg, also been on the podcast on a number of occasions to do with learning disorders and gender dysphoria. So to both of you, welcome back. It's a great pleasure to have you joining us for this particular episode of Beyond Madness. And I must say thank you to you, Mark, for suggesting the topic. I think it's an important topic, and I'm pleased that we've been able to really make it happen. So as Usual, I like to kind of define our terms of reference. So I'll start with you, Mark, in terms of how would you define? I mean, there's a World Health Organization definition, which I'll get into, but how would you define self-harm or self-injurious behavior? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back here. And I'm so pleased to be trying to address this difficult and very important topic. So people who self-harm do it with various um, meanings attached right. and they have various ideas of what they want to accomplish but for most people it's uh, some form of hurt they they get relief from whatever is done to the body right what what we need to separate out is psychic pain and physical pain right. and um, people in general and especially young adults 
who are suffering with intense psychic pain right. feel a distraction from the physical pain and there is something relieving about doing that. Yes, and I think that's very powerful because I, I, I can remember as a junior trainee encountering my first patient who, who, who had cut and it was fascinating for me to kind of understand the uh, uh, release that it provided, the relief that it provided, and how it felt for them. Uh, and to me, it was kind of completely counterintuitive that somebody could do that to themselves and yet experience almost something positive as a consequence. But we're not saying that it is. But when you speak to patients, often that's how it comes across. Wendy, as a subspecialist, child and adolescent psychiatrist, you, I would imagine, see quite a bit of this or certainly some of it. Your thoughts in that sense? I think what I am seeing, and thanks to you, Chris, for, for having me to talk about this topic, what I am seeing is extraordinarily heightened numbers of young okay. people battling with this. Right. You know, when I, when I was a, a trainee and uh, a junior consultant, um, it was something that I was particularly interested in and uh, pursued part of my MED in the factors associated with self-harm. Right. But it was it was a containable. It felt a bit more containable yes. in those days. Right at the moment, it has become my bread and butter, sure. an everyday issue, an everyday issue of an adolescent in distress and an adolescent engaging in some potentially destructive. Yes. Risky behavior as so, a result of, of emotional pain. So I think there's keywords there, destructive. You know, that's, 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 that's important. And I think that Mark, that answers the question. Mark and I were chatting uh, offline beforehand and Mark has said, well, so what's, what's the South African situation? I said, well, I don't have a particularly good handle on, on, on exactly what's going on on the general population. I have a sense, but I think Wendy, you're kind of addressing that, that, that issue in terms of what you're seeing in your practice, which is relative to what you we're seeing. So you can mm. certainly uh, understand that there's been a change in your patient's uh, presentation or the extent of presentation of this kind of behavior. Undoubtedly. So, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and, and it is unfortunate. And I think that at, at, at some point I'm going to pose the question as to why, which I think is a very important question. I'm not saying that we're going to have the answers. But if I look at the World Health Organization's definition, they speak about a deliberate act, which I think is important, with a non-fatal outcome, important, to bring about change, important, due to the expected physical consequences of the act. And so I think that that kind of definition breaks down and, and gives us various components. But there's this, there's this issue around intent. And maybe, Mark, you want to jump in there because you work with suicidality and, 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 and suicide. And the question of intent, I think, is very important because is it an intent to just do harm for whatever reason, and we'll get into that, or is there a suicidality behind it, or can one not necessarily predict which one is going to go in which direction with non-suicidal versus suicidal? So mark your thoughts on that. Well, it's complex. So it's a very interesting question and very important, both academically and clinically, and for the individual. Right. What we can start with is that people who are in this state are suffering greatly. Right. And cutting yourself or harming yourself is really evidence of tremendous self-distress mm -hmm. and not knowing what to do. To Sometimes it's to self-soothe, 
to make yourself feel better, or as you're saying, in certain people feeling like I can't go on anymore, I'm going to end my life. So it's it's evidence of great distress and how to uh, how somebody manages this great internal distress, usually internal pain related to how they think of themselves or what they've been through. Right. How much of this has to do with um, stopping at self-harming, which is mm-hmm. bad enough and very difficult to witness, or what we would call a rehearsal, yes. a pre- preparation for actual suicide? It's difficult to distinguish. But what you sometimes see that lets you know this is when people are cutting and the cutting's getting deeper and more destructive. Okay. Then, then it seems to be on the path towards ultimate uh, death and suicide. So we're looking at escalation, actually, where we're getting exactly. re- repeated attempts and it's just kind of moving further and further towards something that is more profound, actually, in terms of the self-harm. Because I think sometimes people, and, and Wendy, you might comment on this, some people look at self-harm as almost attention-seeking. And I think that that is something that we need to be very clear on, that ultimately, okay, even if you want to call it attention-seeking, that person is drawing attention to distress that needs to be addressed. It's not some kind of manipulative tool. It's a kind of expression of what is going on within the individual. And I think that sometimes we almost become desensitized where we see that happening amongst adolescents. And as I was saying earlier, one has to be careful that isn't, just seen as some kind of normative variation on, on, on behavior. So your thoughts, Wendy? Absolutely. I think that's the bottom line in many respects. Yes. Is that this the self-injurious behavior is an indicator of extreme dismay, of uh, an incapacity to find another way to resolve the emotional distress. Yes. Um, I fear that we are tending towards um, normalizing. In many ways. That's scary. Um, You know, because it is at the moment such a common occurrence Mm. um, where on one hand, one would want to reassure parents that self-harm doesn't necessarily indicate an immediacy of suicidal risk. By the same token, we do know that young folks who have self-harmed historically, that the, you know, the risk of ultimately uh, ending up with a suicide is higher. So um, I, so I, I kind of look at it as a as, as a nonverbal communication. You know, because I come from an eating disorders background, for me, when I work with anorexia nervosa, you know, people often say to me, what causes anorexia nervosa? And I say, well, as many cases as I see, that's as many causes as I find. Because each person has a story. And, 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 and in a sense, the, the anorexia is a, is a nonverbal, a very powerful nonverbal communication of what I call intrapsychic distress. This is a very distressed individual. And I think we need to see self-injurious behavior, self-harm within the same context. Context. This is a person who's in distress. No matter how superficial it might be initially, it's the beginning and it's somebody saying, I need some help. Mark, your, your thoughts on that and, and, and how I understand it. I, I think you've got, got it exactly right, that this term intrapsychic distress is a very apt term. And it's helping us see that no matter what the person looks like on the outside, 
and she or he might look well put together. They might not show any visible scars or bleeding because they've put on long sleeves or they've Mm. covered it up. And they might look like they're doing okay in school and they're socializing, but that's on the outside. It's the intrapsychic distress that's really most pertinent. And knowing about self-injurious behavior just in and of itself tells us that there has been great intrapsychic distress Mm. and difficulty coping with it. I mean, all of us have this distress at different times, but we find different ways to talk. We might talk with our friends, Mm. our parents, our colleagues, but not knowing what to do with it sometimes leads to taking it out on the body. So what I find interesting also is, is, is how often it's hidden. So one sees all kinds of interesting places on the body, and I don't want to give people ideas, but certainly what comes across is that often the wearing of long sleeves, for example, so the scars are not seen. And so at, at, at some level, as much as it is an indication of this intrapsychic distress that cannot be verbalized, there's also a hiding of it, which kind of compounds the situation. Why can you not talk about what you're experiencing, what you're going through? The inner thigh is another possible place. And I mean, I've seen labial, uh, uh, a self-injurious behavior where, where young women have cut their labia. So I mean, it's, 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 it's really dramatic stuff and, and it's profoundly unsettling when you think about what this person is doing to themselves because of what they're experiencing. So I don't know what your experience is, Wendy, but this, this idea of, of, of hiding the, the scarring and the cutting so that it won't be seen and yet this is going on, which means there's something that is profoundly distressing that needs to actually be verbalized, but there's a, a block. Your thoughts, Wendy? Well, I suspect that a lot of folks who do use this as a strategy to cope with their uh, distress, um, that there's a lot of shame yes. uh, around it, not only okay. the cutting itself. We're using cutting as an example. There's, yes. There's shame for having... Re- had to resort to that um, strategy or perhaps even shame at not managing. Um, And and so it becomes quite covert. Um, You know, there are unfortunately a a cohort of of children that I'm seeing that are enacting this in quite public spaces now. Okay. Which, so there's, you know, there is a sort of level of theater that comes with some of it, but I would say for the greater percentage, yeah. most people struggle with with it being a shameful, difficult uh, set of emotions and a difficult way of, of dealing with things. So, so I suppose that was my concern, the theatrical element to it, which in some way diminishes it because at the end of the day there are those – who you just don't know about, and, and, and they are really struggling. I don't know, Mark, what's your experience been in terms of what Wendy is saying? That Because there is a theatrical element to it, and there's also, a, um, and certainly from an inpatient perspective, when I ran the adolescent unit, there's a kind of a contagion effect, which also takes place of so this whole social contagion. Mark, your thoughts? Well, the contagion is very powerful, especially um, electronic and social media. Yes. And, uh, yeah. <clears throat> young people uh, helping each other to be more destructive is very worrisome. But Wendy's saying something very important, I think, about the issue of shame. Mm-hmm. This idea that something needs to be hidden and then the flip side of 
I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm going to show the world how badly I'm doing. I I think they're just two sides of the same coin. Most people, I think, would would hide it at this point. But the the overt showing, especially on social media, is a way of saying, uh, see how badly I am experiencing life. And uh, this is my strength to show off my pain. But indeed, there is great pain and suffering. There is. And I think that, you know, if, if one thinks about the pain, actually, I mean, there's obviously something different necessarily in, in terms of pain threshold. Because I think any person contemplating taking a Stanley knife or a razor and actually intentionally cutting so that you break skin, there is blood. It's painful, and yet for these individuals, these sufferers, that's what they do. And I think, you know, my earlier description of, of one of my first encounters with, with a young woman who, who found this release and, and, and relief, which I kind of found really fascinating because I thought, how can that be? Doesn't it hurt? Isn't there pain involved? And so getting back to what you said earlier, Mark, about the, the physical pain, numbing the psychic pain, I think that's very important. There's, there's something different about a person who's able to actually engage in this kind of behavior and obviously not able to verbalize their distress. Wendy first and, 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 and then Mark. I think, I mean, I suppose there, there are levels at which many of these people have experienced trauma. Right. And there are levels at which um, in that state of, of despair where dissociative experiences come in right and and where one almost to some extent may lose um, contact with with the intensity of the physical pain right so I think there's there's that aspect that um, needs to be considered um, where early childhood trauma has impacted mm. that experience of physical pain so there's a heightened emotion which 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 kind of almost mitigates the physical that's what I think I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the way I, the way I would put it is that people find a way to cope with unbearable psychic experience. Right. And one of the ways that people cope is what we call dissociation. Okay. So it's a way of putting feelings to the side. Right. However, in the dissociative state, there's a certain numbness and a difficulty uh, negotiating the reality of one's life. Yes, And it's also quite distressing. People can tolerate that for quite a while, but it's quite distressing. And often people will say, well, when I cut myself, it brings me back. Yes. Something about the pain. It's not that they're not feeling the pain. Right. Pain helps looking at the blood. I become a real person again. Right. It helps me re-enter into my real life. Okay. So Which bring- is difficult because, as Wendy said, a lot of times this comes out of a background of having some trauma. Yes, being aware of your trauma is very painful and difficult. And overwhelming at times. I think when one is kind of revisiting it and and, and re-experiencing it in a a kind of a post-traumatic stress disorder kind of way, and so it's overwhelming. But, of course, we're talking about cutting, but there are many other forms of of, of physical harm. Burning is one. Headbanging is another. I've, I've, I've encountered all, all of those. I mean, slightly different to, to, to cutting, obviously. And of course, overdose. I mean, I mean, surely one would look at overdosing as a, as a form of, of, of self-injurious behavior or self-harm, Mark? Absolutely, yeah. So, They're all forms of hurting the self, 
in particular hurting the bodily self. And it's very distressing to watch family members have a hard time. Yes. And uh, friends have a hard time. And therapists have a hard time seeing the destruction of the body, which seems so um, difficult to experience and to be a witness to. Well, it's counterintuitive. You would think that, you know, if I've got a problem, I don't need to destroy myself in order to deal with that problem. I need to deal with the problem. But, of course, that's, that's logical. And so we think it through in that sense. And ultimately, I suppose, when we get into the more therapeutic aspects of it, that's what you would like the person to, to be able to do. But I think that uh, aside from direct physical harm in terms of self-harm, drugs, substance abuse, sexual behavior, impulsive, risky sexual behavior, when do your thoughts on that? Undoubtedly, I think that's very much fits into the spe- the spectrum of of, of self harming behavior. And you spoke earlier about you know working with patients suffering with eating disorders. Mm. Um, and only today I sat with a young person who told me that they restrict their eating as a way of harming themselves. Interesting. So not having the body uh, dissatisfaction, but yes. really punishing and harming themselves by not eating. So. The, the sort of disregard for the safety of the self and the physical self, um, you know, and the, and the many, the plethora of behaviors that fit in with that, I think for me falls under the umbrella of, of self-harm. So, to me, I mean, it's really interesting because obviously coming from an eating disorders background, there's always an assumption that uh, restriction of food intake is linked in some way to, to body image. But what you're saying is, no, 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 hang on a sec. Here's an individual, they starve themselves, but for them it's punishment. And, and it's got nothing to do with losing weight, body image, none of those things. Now you're dealing with a whole different uh, type of individual. Mark, your, your thoughts about all these other forms of, 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 of self-harm? Oh, when we think of punishment, then I think of guilt. So right. there's a, a self-assessment that I'm guilty. And even though from the outside we we might think you really done nothing wrong, in fact you were a victim and you suffered, the boundary between what did I do and what was done to me gets lost, usually because of the severity of some trauma. And so people tend to blame themselves and then in punishing the perpetrator, they punish themselves or their bodily self as a way of trying to reclaim the experience. So once again, I mean, this, this, this comes back to verbalization, saying what needs to be said that is difficult to say and putting something out there that, that, that may have consequence. But if you don't put it out there, then there will be a consequence on you because essentially if you don't share it or, or, or express it, you're the one who experiences it. So I think that's, again, looking at, at, at alternatives to harming yourself is maybe causing discomfort elsewhere, but that's maybe where it belongs. But I wanted to come back to something Wendy had said. You know, you you were talking earlier, Wendy, about how this has kind of become bread and butter for you, that this is happening to such an extent. Mark, what is your experience? I mean, obviously, Wendy is a subspecialist child and adolescent psychiatrist, but in terms of your experience? My experience with young people, and I see a lot of people in uh, university and postgraduate, I think they all consider self-harming, at least the people that I see. Yes. And so it's, it's some, for some of them it's a thought and for some of them it's a behavior. And for some of them it's chronic behavior and then for some it's a prelude towards wanting to kill themselves. So I think it's very common and very painful to have that kind of threat 
hanging over you, especially for families. You know, oh, if we say the wrong thing, then uh, she'll be self-harming. Or if uh, this and that happens, then he'll go out and do something self-destructive. It, it's a very scary situation to feel like you're walking on eggshells about how do we approach this difficult problem of self-harm. So when I hear you describe it like that, and that's a very real scenario, actually, is there, and I don't want to, to, to appear judgmental, but is there a manipulative aspect to this, which all comes back to the same thing. I've got a problem and no one is hearing me. And I think sometimes what happens is people become a little bit um, not dismissive, but less tolerant of that kind of behavior. But in fact, it is behavior that's coming out of distress. So Mark, you because you were talking specifically about the families. Yeah, I don't think it's manipulative. I think we make a mistake if we think of it that way. Right. It's, it's, it might feel that way because people, uh, families or, or loved ones feel uh, that they're at the end of their tolerance. They don't know what to do. Right. And they are quite desperate of how do we communicate with our child who's uh, so distressed and so fragile. So, no, I don't, I don't think it's consciously manipulative uh, from the point of view of the teenager. Um, I, I think it's... I'm trying my best, and this is all I can do to hold things together. Right. And families um, also pick that up, and that's when they feel desperate. We, we're all trying our best. What do we do? Right. Help us know what to do because it feels like any step can rock the boat and be disastrous. So I think it's all about ultimately communication. I mean, in terms of being able to express and for the families not to be fearful but to hold that and try to understand it and then collaboratively work together. But that's really difficult. I don't know, Wendy, I'm maybe speaking idealistically, but that's obviously what one works towards because I think that at the end of the day, and I I say it to all of my patients, if your parents know there's something wrong with you but they can't access it, that is very distressing because often the child will say, look, I I don't want to trouble my parents or it's going to upset them. And I say what's really upsetting for, for, for parents is not being able to be part of the solution knowing that there's a problem. And so these may be difficult things to talk about, but if they're spoken about, then they can be addressed. I don't know what your thoughts are, Wendy. Hmm. I'd say absolutely the greater majority of parents desperately want to be able to respond and support and and know how to help. Yes. Um, but often when we've, we've got to a, a situation like this, we've got into a pernicious cycle of where right. communication has just gone gone awry um, and and perhaps for the young person it doesn't feel safe mm. to communicate things well i would um, imagine there's a communication issue to start with <laughs> so now we're saying well you know that was the problem but actually it's the solution and so how do you kind of move from problem to solution within that context but i suppose that's the therapeutic process something occurred to me mark i think we are probably products of the 70s And uh, I'm thinking back to school days, and I'm listening to what Wendy is saying in terms of what's her bread and butter. But I do not recall, and maybe I was just unaware, going through my school career back in the 70s, I don't recall this. I really don't recall this kind of self-harm, suicide attempts. It, 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 it It was just not on the agenda. And I'm thinking, so what's changed? I mean, I'm asking a very big question now. Because there's clearly something that's changed. But, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just tapping into your experience, Mark. And uh, 
Wendy, you have, might, might have thoughts on that, but you know, growing up, I had no sense of this, and I'm not sure that it was purely naivety or lack of awareness because people knew what was going on uh, within their peer group. Mark, your thoughts? I think kids today are much more aware than I was. I think they're much more educated in the sense of knowing about things going on in the world mm. and unfortunately also much more knowledgeable of bad things. I think in a way I, I led a protective life and yes. <laughs> uh, was secure in a little place on my own. Yes. And it was only afterwards at, uh, <clears throat> at university that... Uh, was more exposed. So it was only later at university that you were much more exposed to to suffering, as you say. So I, you know, but let me, let me say this. Yes, I think the the ways of communicating now are much more powerful than we had. Yes, when I spoke to my friend group. Maybe I wrote letters. Mm. Um, we heard music. Nowadays, you talk to everyone on the internet, on social media. Communication is vast and intense. And immediate. And, and immediate, absolutely. And yeah. powerful, so, so powerful. powerful. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking back to what you're saying. I mean, we, yeah, we used to get together, listen to music, and just share. And, you know, we all had our issues within our families, uh, but we also had a lot of good times. And I, it just concerns me that something fundamental and profound has changed. I don't know, Wendy, what your sense of that is. There's no doubt that something fundamental has changed. <laughs> I haven't worked out quite yet what it is. Yes. I think, you know, Mark's point about the, the nature of communication being different is, is vital. But there's something that's also not happening in mm. the communication. Okay. Um, that the, the messages are getting lost and and that the, the between-person communication doesn't seem to be happening. And I'm thinking particularly between parents and children. Yes. Okay. So I think that's a big issue, actually. You know, you know, when I ran the unit, one of the common sort of what they, you'd call a V-code was parent-child relational problems. And, I mean, once you dive down into parent-child relational problems, you get all kinds of consequences and manifestations. So it always comes back to context. Let me look at the primary caregiver relationship, and then maybe I get a better understanding of why I'm seeing what I'm seeing. So, yes, maybe that is an issue, Wendy, and I think it's something that, you know, one certainly needs to to look at. But, you know, you'd, you, you'd spoken earlier about, you know, how, how commonly you're seeing the problem. But I just want to put some prevalence data on this. And there is some local uh, um, data, sub-Saharan data. So if you read the media, they would tell you that this kind of behavior is on the increase, but they don't really provide a, a source. It's, it's more clinical exposure and, and, and clinician uh, experience, as is yours, Wendy. But they talk about... Lifetime prevalence of self-injurious behavior, about 10.3% will engage. 12-month prevalence, about 16.9%. And six-month prevalence, 18.2%. I think that's pretty high. I mean, they're talking about one-fifth of, 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 of adolescents might engage in self-injurious behavior. We're talking sub-Saharan Africa. So that maybe gives, you know, to your experience, Wendy, it kind of speaks. But if you if you look at that versus actual diagnostic entities in psychiatry, these prevalence rates are far higher than, for example, major depression or any of the anxiety disorders. So it's a really very prevalent phenomenon, and I'm not sure to what extent it's fully understood in terms of its, of its, of its prevalence, because I, I know that as a clinician, when you work with a certain group of individuals, that's what, that's what you see. 
Mm. Now we're talking about yeah. the general population. So it's, 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 it's really just putting a, a, a number on it. And so there's, there's a hell of a lot more self-harm going on out there than we diagnose actual psychiatric conditions. Wendy? I think that those rates kind of do match up with probably what is likely going on out there. Yeah. And I suppose, um, you know, we maybe have come from the notion where you have to have sort of psychiatric pathology right. in order to respond and behave in such a way. And I think that's, you know, certainly debunked, that right. it's not only the depressed child or the morbidly right. anxious child, right. or, you know, the child with um, poor impulse control that's going to engage in these kinds of behaviors. Um, so in many levels, that's sort of one in five in a class, yeah. I think it's a possibility. So we think it's a possibility. So we're kind of taking the behavior out of the context of a diagnostic entity. It's kind of like a behavior in itself. I don't know, Mark. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, yes, well, that's an interesting question. What's the relationship of self-harming behavior and psychiatric illness? Yes, and are they two separate entities, or do they overlap? I think they probably overlap, mm. but here. Let me go back to the data you described, yeah. which is, I think, global. I, I think that's the okay. the amount in the West. About 20% of young people are in this kind of distress. That's a lot. And it's a lot, and it's um, probably, and it's certainly increased in the last 30 years or so. Yeah. So what what's going on and what does it mean? Uh, because the rates of mental illness aren't really increasing, certainly aren't increasing at that level. Yes, so and and and, and that's is, and that's exactly my point. So sorry, Mark, just to jump in there, but carry on. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, is this evidence of something else? And I'm wondering if it could be evidence of group dynamics. Of mm. I hear about this, and I think it might help me, and it uh, might be something that I'll give a try for reasons that we don't understand, because for most of us, penetrating the uh, barrier of our skin just feels too upsetting, too scary to even contemplate. And so how would somebody start to think I, I could do that? Yes. And it might be some benefit is a difficult question to face up to. I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating question. Because, I mean, aside from the fact that you may have heard this from somebody else or it, it might be happening in your group, where do you come to the understanding that this is what I think I should do in order to feel better, to feel relieved? It's a hell of a thought because, I, you know, I, I just can't contemplate self-harm as, as, as a solution. I see it as the problem that it is, but for some it's, it's a solution. So I… I wanted to get back to something you'd said earlier, Wendy, about your MMED, your Masters in Medicine, and it had been an interest for you uh, mm, as a yeah. trainee and as a junior consultant, some of the factors associated mm. with self-harm. So, so if you can remember your MMED data or yeah. <laughs> you know, what that yeah. was all about, maybe you could share with us some of the thoughts before we get into mm. looking at some of the precipitants or kind of key correlates. Sure. And, and I suppose the self-harm there really related to non-fatal suicidal behavior. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, my hypothesis was that, in fact, that there was parental um, 
miscommunication, that there was family uh, distress and family dynamics that would contribute or be associated with um, the, the non-fatal suicidal behavior or and or self-harm. Um, and, and essentially that is what we found. But what we also found in conjunction with that were, um, you know, educational difficulties, uh, substance misuse, right. um, poverty, um, you know, and, and a myriad of other psychosocial factors. But, um, you know, in the sample that I studied far and away, the, the family dynamics were uh, uh, very strongly associated with, with uh, so, unfatal suicidal behavior and self-harm. So I think that's very yeah. – I mean, I mean that, that just kind of ties in with what we were talking about earlier. But my question, and I'll maybe direct it to you, Mark, is there a certain personality style? of the individual who engages in that kind of behavior? Is there something common to those who engage in that kind of behavior? Because there are a whole set of potential psychosocial stresses, academic failure, abuse, obviously, relationship issues, be they family or, or, or romantic, you know, just feeling overwhelmed by one's circumstances. But is there something common to, to the young individual who's going to engage in that behavior in terms of their style, personality style, their coping style? Oh, yes. I, I go back to how do you learn to cope in this life? And we learn by um, exposure, usually from our families, usually our parents, maybe one parent, and from our siblings, and then later on from our peer group. And if we live an isolated life emotionally and we don't really know how to deal with uh, painful affects, emotions that are maybe loneliness or uh, distress or feeling overwhelmed, then it's difficult to learn uh, a good way of coping when you're distressed. Mm. And so uh, there's a kind of a desperation of I'll try anything to try and cope with. Now, later on, when young people start to get into their late teens and early 20s, we think of this cluster as coming to represent borderline personality disorder. Right. You see a lot of self-harm in the, the personality structure that's described as borderline personality disorder. Right. But in younger uh, teenagers and young adults, it's not quite clear that it's already formed into such a personality disorder. Right. It's more of a distress about how, how have I learned to uh, inappropriate ways or ineffectual, or rather, let me say ineffectual ways mm. of coping, usually with terrible loneliness or frustration about not being able to express myself. Right. So there is so there is a potential personality st- well we know that there are certain personality styles that are inclined towards that kind of of behavior. And I, and I must say that with within the the discipline the the sort of diagnostic entity of borderline personality disorder is is, is a very difficult one. I I think at some point it was quite stigmatized in a way. You know if you said to somebody They've got a borderline personality disorder. I mean, you were making a very specific statement. I have to say now, I'm inclined when I encounter a patient to actually go there, to say, look, your behavior conforms to what we might call a borderline personality structure, which could be a disorder. And so we need to look at that. You know, we call it what we can diagnostically, but then we explore what are the issues. So we move beyond the diagnostic label and we get into the person. So I, 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 at, at some point I was kind of reticent 
And as I've gotten older and maybe, you know, a little bit more skilled, I'm kind of changing my position where I think, no, one must have a frank discussion and say, well, you know, here's the diagnostic and statistical manual. We could put you there diagnostically, but okay, that's a diagnosis. Let's look at you, the person. When do your thoughts on that? Mm. I mean, I think certainly that that pendulum has shifted. Mm. And I think with, with young people's access to information, I often find they come to me with the question. Okay. Um, and and so I, I feel it's okay to, to think about it like that. And, you know, just to pull in what Mark was saying is at a young age, one would certainly not want to pin a diagnosis Absolutely. on. Absolutely. But certainly to, to have a discussion and say, well, look, yes, how how is this relevant to you and how might this help you, hmm. this sort of framework of understanding? Um and, and sort of picking it up from there. Um, with the understanding, of course, that a personality structure in, in an adolescent is a work in progress. Oh, yes. And so that, you know, this might be how you're functioning at the moment. And um, let's not wear this as a badge of honor, but sort of see how we can move past this and find other ways of, of managing your dismay. Well, I like to, to, to look at these behaviors as what I call inclinations. And I say everybody has inclinations. You know, I might see a person who I don't like and I'm inclined to become immediately defensive when they walk in the room. That's my inclination and I've got to manage that because they haven't done anything. I just, for whatever reason, they get to me. So I, I, I kind of look at it within the context of, of inclinations and how do we manage those in a different way. So... I don't know what your thoughts are there, Mark, but I'm just sort of jumping into the sort of psychotherapeutic or or, or therapeutic way of understanding what is going on as opposed to demonizing it, kind of saying, okay, it happens, it's distressing, there's a reason for it, it's an inclination, how do we shift it? Mark? I had a patient who came to see me, a college student, and she said early on in the first interview, I'm, I've got six out of the nine criteria for borderline personality disorder and right. five out of the eight criteria for depression. Right. And she was right. I mean, people nowadays have access to diagnosis and they know it. And saying, yes, you meet these criteria and this is the treatment that can help with it, I think is enormously useful. There was a time when, well, borderline personality disorder was certainly stigmatized. Mm. But any kind of psychiatric illness was stigmatized. Yes. In fact, cancer was stigmatized too. All, all illness was stigmatized. And at the hospital where I'm at, which is McLean Hospital, John Gunderson, who was an authority on borderline personality right. disorder, would advocate quite strongly at saying, um, this is really what you're facing and this is the treatments we have um, manuals that describe effective treatments and this is what you're up against and once you just put it in terms of clear uh, scientific data it destigmatizes it yes because in the past borderline personality disorder had to do with uh, really suggesting that it was manipulative mm. not manipulative it's just a way of trying to deal with great distress with limited access to internal strengths I think sometimes clinicians feel somewhat, I don't want to use the word intimidated, maybe overwhelmed, but they, they, they kind of want to put a distance between themselves and those kind of patients because, you know, 
they're difficult. And so I think there's almost a, 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 a stigmatization from within the discipline, which I, which I think is kind of breaking down a little bit now. And I think certainly, depending on how you understand it, will influence how you experience what is going on with the patient and how you, how you address it. Is there a female preponderance? Wendy? Mark? Well, I think that's what got us into this difficulty in the first place. It felt like it was blaming young women mm. and um, women in their 20s for their suffering. There, there has been a female preponderance in borderline personality disorder and a um, male preponderance in narcissistic personality disorder. Yes. That's just probably due to our criteria and not really due to the reality of um, the gender discrimination. People are uh, stuck with what what they're dealing with and then um, trying to find ways to put it into words and deal with what the, the pain is is usually the effective approach. So what we're saying is that, yes, there tends to be a female preponderance, but we're not saying that is a uniquely female uh, uh, behavior. And certainly I've seen men who engage in, in self-destruct behavior. And in fact, one of my first exposures was a young man who wanted to cut his penis off because he wanted to be a woman. And we're going back now to the 80s. Actually, and I, you know, it, it, it was quite astounding for me because I'd never come across this. I wasn't specializing. I was working in a GP practice. And so certainly I've seen that kind of uh, self-destructive behavior, cutting behavior in men. So I, it's, it's, it's not a uniquely female, but there was a very specific context there. What is the tendency for it to be a one-off versus repeated? Wendy? Unfortunately, I think it, it typically becomes more um, – a repeated behavior. And I think particularly if the young person finds that it serves the purpose for which they employed it. Right. You know, so if it, it sort of meets the, meets the point, and often it is about regulation and finding a point of regulation, mm. regrouping. And so unfortunately it can be quite a powerful, uh, powerfully reinforcing behavior. So I think it's more repetitive than once off. Yes. Mark? Difficult to intervene and stop if it produces gratification. Yeah. It's like drug use that there's something that is so gratifying that leads to repetition. Yeah. So, you know, breaking this barrier, the skin barrier, the integrity of the skin barrier can be, can, can lead to doing it again and more repetition, which is what makes people observing it so distressed. Well, I think it's that crossing of the boundary, right? You've now just moved beyond, and it's something that's possible. And, and I mean, everything we've spoken about, release, relief, mood stabilization, uh, sort of an antidote to, 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 to derealization that kind of brings you back. I mean, all of these are very powerful incentives in a way to continue because it works in that moment, but then it becomes a way of being, and that is ultimately very destructive. And I, and I think we have to be careful because we're not selling it. We're just saying that, yes, these are ways to accomplish something, but these are destructive ways. And ultimately, one would prefer that it's not a, a coping style because I think that's, that's the concern is that it becomes consolidated as a coping style, Mark. And I think that's yeah. what you were kind of saying. 
that's absolutely something we must underscore, that this is something, without being judgmental, this is something that's not effective, and there's better ways, and that the better ways is usually talking, discussion, communication, but that actions of hurting the self are not effective and very dangerous and quite frightening. And I think that, uh, Wendy, I'm going to ask you this, because at the end of the day, it does provide something, but what you need to notice is you continue to need to use it because you're not necessarily coming to the essence of what is really going on. Wendy? Absolutely. So it's it's both an issue of understanding what's underneath, <clears throat> pardon me, yes. and as well finding other regulation strategies. You know, it's a, it's a maladaptive strategy. Um, yes. And finding other resources that in the moment – can sort of meet you uh, and help you find a place of of regulation, and then from there, you know, building up those sets of resources, and at the same time, trying to find some insight into to how we get into that place of such dismay and distress. Because I think that when the sufferer, and I'm going to use that word sufferer, uh, experiences the need, they need that release now. You know, the, the, and, and I, you know, I, I was kind of thinking of the link between that and impulsivity, whether it's, it's, it's impulsive or whether it's more than impulsive. It's actually, no, this works and I need relief now. And how do you get the person to prolong their distress, to avoid that behavior, to get to a point where they can more rationally work out what might be a more constructive alternative? Mark, your thoughts there? Well, people know that this is not effective. So my patient says, I haven't cut myself for a month. Right. And she's almost proud of it, although she wouldn't quite admit that. Right. But she's trying to delay. Try, try. She knows that it produces a certain feeling that's gratifying, but she also knows that it's not helpful and actually quite dangerous and make, makes her ashamed, so she hides it. But she's trying to delay. And talking to me or waiting until she has a chance to talk with somebody else is a way of putting it off when the precipitance of making her feel that she can't delay any longer, then she gets overwhelmed and then she cuts. Right. And then actually feels quite ashamed that she wasn't as strong as she thought she would be to, to avoid it. Well, I just think that it's really difficult to resist that urge when you've got that need. And so therapeutically, you know, one is trying to, to, to delay that. And the longer you delay, maybe the feeling will pass because often feelings do pass and you didn't have to do anything destructive. And if you were just able to withstand the urge, easier said than done. But I think therapeutically, one is speaking about that ability to, to, to do that. And that becomes a badge of honor actually for the patient. I didn't cut as opposed to I cut. It relieved. I moved on, but then I cut again because the feeling came back. So, Wendy, I mean, how do how do you work in that sense? Because I'm sort of sharing how I think about these things, and how I might speak about these things with yeah. my patients. So, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I'm sort of very privileged to be working in a context where there is a a, a really good team who works in a dialectical behavior therapy model. Right. So, often, you know get my colleagues, uh, psychotherapists involved to, to assist in 
you know, not only in the individual space and, and creating insight, but also working in a group space uh-huh. um, and learning um, about other kinds of skills. Let me talk about skills-based therapy. Um, I mean, sometimes, and, and I, I was on a conversation, on a telephone conversation with a young person before coming here, is to, to try and help them understand, yes, you are feeling this way, life is tough, and there is another truth, and there right. are other other options. Um, so I suppose it, it is, you know, um, about referring to experts who really know how to deal with this. Yes. And then also just helping young people to, to find an understanding that this is not going to annihilate them. They feel a sense of, of you know, that they're being annihilated in the moment, um, but that we can try and create a pause and we can try and find ways to, to just survive this and something else will follow. I think that pause is very important. You know, it's that first not reaching for in order to do whatever. It's that pause. Mark, what do you think about that? I mean, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a kind of a first approach. Yes, if you can take a deep breath and not act immediately, that's a, that's a very good first step. And learning skills, that's what DBT really, treat, really teaches people. Another skill of what you could do alternatively. And people should know, especially young people, that we do have at least five or six manualized treatments for mm. self-harm, right. especially for borderline personality disorder and self-harming. And each one teaches a different way of how to cope with this overwhelming distress. Yes. So we do have, in the, in the clinical field, we do have styles of treatment that can be effective. And I think it's, 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 it's ultimately about coping. How do I deal with my emotions? How do I deal with the circumstances that lead to those emotions? And, you know, within the context of, of, of families, the parent-child relationships, communication, the connection, the trust, the conversations – for me, it's, it's, it's the difficult conversations that ultimately need to be had in order to facilitate something better down the line. But in the moment, immediately, it may be very, very difficult. So I think that we don't want to be nihilistic about this. These are behaviors that do exist. We are not in any way endorsing them. We're saying no. The fact that they exist so widely is, is cause for concern, and we will obviously deal with each individual who engages in such behavior within the context of who they are, where they come from, what it does for them, and what they might do differently to become more functional individuals. Actually, Mark, any, any closing words from yourself and then, and then Wendy? Just I would say to young people listening to this that don't give up hope. There are treatments. Talk to a concerned adult or to somebody in your family or talk to your friends to find somebody, at least find somebody, because I think talking helps delay the need for action. Yes. Wendy? Absolutely. I'd like to follow on from what Mark's saying and saying connection, I think, is key. Mm. And, you know, being able to reach out and connect, um, I think that could make all the difference. Yes. And I think that that requires trust. And so, mm. you know, central to all relationships is trust. So, Wendy and Mark, always a pleasure to host you. And thanks once Thank again you. for taking your time to share your knowledge and, and obviously expertise. And so in closing, a few words that caught my eye from a Canadian cultural critic and communications theorist. 
His name is Herbert Marshall McLuhan, not necessarily well known, but he said something not in relation to what I'm talking about, but in maybe in relation to a question I asked earlier about what's changed. And he said, innumerable confusions and a profound feeling of despair invariably emerge in periods of great technological and cultural transitions. And I think that's maybe where we find ourselves right now. So just some thoughts. This has been Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Remember, there is no health without mental health, and until next time, take care.